Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. As most of you know, I spent a considerable amount of time in prison, and prison reform is something that I take very seriously. Now, obviously, my experiences have been limited to a men's prison, but today's guest is here to talk to us about what it's like being in a women's prison. Now, if I'm correct, the principles involved would dictate that the women's prison is very similar to the men's prison. But again, today's guest is going to tell us about her experiences. Now, she wasn't just a prisoner. She is the former award-winning blogger for Prison Diaries. She is a writer uh, for the Witness LA and the Connecticut Examiner, and she is also a columnist at the National Memo. And by the way, although she did spend six years in women's prison, she still maintains her innocence. Chandra Bazelko, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's good to be here. So to get started, what was a standard day like in in women's prison? Uh, I I would say it's probably the same as a standard day in a men's prison, although I'm I you know I don't have that exact comparison. Um, for me, uh, ever since 2009, I I was in prison from 2007 to 2014. So from 2009 on, I worked in some type of a kitchen, either the production kitchen or uh, the distribution kitchen, which is basically the chow hall. Uh, and so I would get up at 3:30 in the morning, go to work at four after count cleared and then work until about noon, sometimes later um, in the kitchen. And then I would spend the rest of my day writing things uh, that were that I was trying to get published while I was inside. So um, I think we have the same schedule in terms of like rec time and everything else as as men in Connecticut's prisons. Uh, But I think it's substantially similar. So it's um, I was in, you know, because you were in Connecticut as well. Um, I the women's prison in Connecticut is the only women's prison for state people on, you know, held on state charges. So yes. we have both pretrial and sentenced pe- women together in that one facility, which means that we have people that are both charged with, you know, breach of peace, the lowest criminal charge uh, in the state and also convicted of capital murder. And we're going to be sentenced to death. Um, but the jury came back with life sentences. So we have two extremes residing in the same facility, sometimes in the same cell. So I think in that respect, the women's prison in Connecticut is a little bit different than other places because we have these extremes residing together or working together or doing anything together. Um, So I think that was one of the unique parts of my experience is that I I got to see both low level offenders, you know, people who really didn't do much of anything but couldn't afford a bond, be stuck in New York correctional uh, institution and then also see people who are going to spend literally the r- rest of their lives there and never go home because they were sentenced to life without parole. Um, so I think that that in, in Connecticut, at least the women's prison, ha- it, it, there's a kind of a, um, a weighty feeling to your day because you know that there are many people who will never see home again. And then there are also people who should have been home, you know, three hours ago. Um, but because they're they're poor, they can't they do can't that. They can't get out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how much out of cell or I don't know, are they, are they dorms or cells? At, both, in New York? both, both. Okay. Both. So, so how much rec time do you get both indoors and outdoors a day? We actually got very little outdoor rec time in the, in the half that I lived in. There's your correctional has two halves. It's called the maximum side and the minimum side. The minimum side actually doesn't even have a fence around it. It's just kind of assumed that people are so either far along in their sentence or their, their sentence is so short um, and they're such low level, uh, they've been classified as such low level risks 
that they can be trusted to live in these kind of dorm facilities on the east side of the of the facility. On the west side, that's where I spent most of my time. Um, that's cells, uh, two man cells or two person cells uh, that, you know, two women would reside in them. And there were about 24 women on a tier, four tiers in a building type of thing. So out of rec, out of like cells, out of cell time was 830 to 10 in the morning, then 130 to three, excuse me, one to 230 in the afternoon and then 630 to nine at night. So not a lot. Okay. And how do the women spend their time out at rec? What, what types of activities um, are they engaged in? Not a lot. Watching TV. If they don't have a TV in their cell, they would watch the, uh, you know, the common area TV. They would play cards. They would draw, read, write. Um, a lot of them had, had jobs throughout the facility, working in the laundry, working in the kitchen with me. Um, there were other, you know, the industries, we called it. That's where they actually made the clothing. It's the Connecticut's uh, correctional departments. It, they have their own LLC, a private company. Yeah, correctional Enterprises of Connecticut. Yes. They they have the women sewing uniforms and doing things like that in one area. Then they also, you, uh, we pack everyone's commissary in the women's prison. And we also have what I mentioned before, the production kitchen, whereas we make most of the meals that are then shipped out to the men's prisons. They're actually cooked and created at York and then they get shipped out to um the various other prisons throughout the state yeah so a lot, lot of, of a lot of women have jobs <laughs> a lot of the guys complained that you would have bitter ex-girlfriends and ex-wives making <laughs> making food I'm for sure, the men <laughs> i'm sure we did i wasn't one of them but i'm sure we did so you did a lot of writing while you were incarcerated now in the men's prison I like to do a lot of reading, a lot of writing myself. And what made it excessively difficult was the level of noise. When inmates were out for tear rack or even in their cells shouting out of their doors and whatnot, it would just be mind-numbingly loud. I'm just wondering, is the women's prison, is there a similar dy dynamic? Did that interfere with your ability to do all the writing you did? Yeah, it, it, I would say that I, I'm going to guess I haven't been in every prison, but I'm going to say that most prisons are loud. I think, first of all, it's the security mat matter, right? So our our tiers were like kind of um, sealed off. One one whole wall was glass so that, you know, the COs could watch us and, you know, observe us while we were doing whatever. And then everything else was cinder block. So you're in this kind of container, right, where the sound is going to reverberate no matter what. So yeah. I think that that no matter even if it was a relatively quiet place, I think it's going to seem louder. <laughs> than it really is. And then there were a number of women there and I, you know, I'll probably catch a lot of flack for saying this, that who are, uh, I would say unreasonably loud, like rather than talking in a normal tone, they had to yell or they would yell down a hallway rather than going sure. down a hallway, say something to someone. So there was that. And then um, just in general, there's clanking of doors. There's, you know, just the, the noises you wouldn't have in a normal living situation. Uh, keys, you you know the sound of keys. I know the sound of keys like uh, mm -hmm. almost like a dog, you know, knows the the scent of a bone, um, and I react to them. So there are all these different noises, and yes, it was very hard. But I also just got a radio and headphones and just blocked it out like that. But yes, I would say in general, prisons are pretty loud. It's hard to think, and then it's also I've written about this really hard to sleep, right? Because you have yes. people even at night, you have. Um, people opening doors and checking on you, sometimes shining a, a flashlight right into your eyes as you sleep, just to see if they could wake you up to be nasty, that kind of thing. So it, it's really hard to sustain any activity that requires um, 
a steadiness, I guess I'll say. Like, so for sleeping or for reading or for writing, that it's really hard. It's, I would say that the typical prison day is pretty um, chaotic. If not, if it's not, if it's not just noise and it's, you know, interruptions and emergencies or, you know, disruptions to your day, that kind of thing. So it's really hard to do anything in a sustained way. Uh, I would, and I would say that was true of me the whole six plus years I was there. One of the things that I've tried to focus on when I, I talk about prisons is in order for a criminal to rehabilitate, the, the criminal needs to alter fundamentally his or her character structure. This requires a, a deep change in thinking, which requires a lot of reading, a lot of introspecting, journaling. All those things are made very difficult in such an, a chaotic environment. And it's not just the, the wreck. You can have a cellmate who doesn't care that you're reading and doesn't care that you're trying to better yourself and will listen to the TV loud or the radio loud or you know, be yelling out the door. One of the most apt descriptions I've ever heard of prison was given by Susan McDougal. When Martha Stewart was on her way to prison, somebody asked Susan McDougal if she had anything that she would say to Martha Stewart. And she said, what I would say is that she is going to a place where the people thrive on chaos. Yep. And I thought that was just so perfect. And the thing is, that type of noise is supposed to be against the rules. It's supposed to be against the rules to be watching your television without your headphones or with or yelling out of your door or slamming dominoes, things of that nature. But that's one of the rules that that's simply not enforced. So, and that obviously falls on the on the correction correctional officers. So, what effect do you think? the culture of correctional officers has on criminal rehabilitation? Well, I think some of them thrive on chaos themselves, right? <laughs> yes, they so, do. Um, so there were, you know, as well as I do, that there are some that are just really great people, right? Like I had my kitchen supervisors um, were terrific and actually protected me. Then there are others who really like to see um, dissent, amongst the inmate population. They like to see people fighting. They like to see girlfriends getting into drama over imagined, um, you know, slights in their romantic relationship. They like all of that and they encourage it. So I think that that's a certain element that they, if they can, the bad ones, if they can contribute to the chaos, they will, right? And they know exactly how to do it and they have the ability and the authority to do it and then also escape, right? Right as things get kind of hairy. So I thought I saw that a lot. And then a lot of times they, if you were to say, I mean, I, I didn't really ever complain about other people because I just knew that I was pretty unusual in there with my background. So I knew it was probably not wise for me to say, can you get this person to turn our TV down or anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I didn't say that, but if someone else did used to say you, I used to witness people say like, you know, some of the CEOs say, um, well, why do you care if her TV's loud? And yeah. obviously the person cares because she wants to sleep, read, just be peaceful sure. for a minute. It's obvious why she's asking for that. And they would kind of start like, why do you, why are you starting trouble when she was really just trying to correct things and get things to way that they, like you said, are supposed to be uh, in the facility. So um, the CEOs, then there are other ones as you know, the uh, good ones who would say like, this TV is too loud. You need to turn it down. You have to be have concern for your cellmate and make sure that she doesn't, you know, she can sleep or she can do what she needs to do, that kind of thing. So it, it 
they, they could contribute to it. They could also stop it. The good ones I found really did try to stop it, but not in a cruel way. Just, you know, recommend like you need to be more thoughtful and for more mindful of the people around you, which actually, when you think about it, that's what crime is, is that you're just not mindful of other people's rights or the fact that there are rules or something, right? It's a lack of mindfulness and a lack of thoughtfulness. So um, I, I used to like kind of have a mini hope that when they would say these things, like, you know, be mindful of the people around you or thoughtful to your cellmate, that this was an attempt at rehabilitation. Um, but I didn't always see it take the way that it should. Right. It didn't, it didn't take root. Um, no. The way that, that we would want it to. So you said something that, that, caught my attention a few minutes ago you said there were good you said there were ceos that were great people would you say that they because there's a distinction here that i make i had a debate once with a, a correctional officer on, on his podcast or a former correctional officer for, former correctional brass and i made the statement that i've never met a good correctional officer and he you know he flipped out about that and I told, I, you know, the distinction is I've met correctional officers that I thought were nice guys or nice women who were good people. But as correctional officers, as people that are supposed to be following the rules, they have an administrative directive to go by. I've never met one that did. And the example I gave him was a correctional officer's duty bound by their directive, by the oath they take when they take that job to report the unethical behavior of coworkers. They're not going to do that. And that's just one thing. And then the, the, the amount of, or the lack rather of rule enforcement in prison. And, you know, a CEO often is regarded as good when he just lets inmates, you know, basically do what they want. He doesn't write anybody up, but that's not a good CEO qua good CEO. What I mean is that it's not a good CEO in according with what his job's supposed to be. So when you say, that, that your kitchen supervisor was a great person. Does that person do his job or her job? And do you, have you come across correctional officers that did their job the way that they're supposed to do it? And I mean, consistently, not in a haphazard way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, my correctional supervisors, let's, I just want to be clear. They were kind of isolated from the rest of the nonsense. They only had to deal with kitchen workers. So they, I would say even under your definition of a, of a good officer, they were right. Okay. They would, they would um, let us know when we did wrong. They didn't necessarily always write us up, but they would stop it. Right. So they weren't really invested in punishing us, yes. but in arresting the bad behavior, they were. Yeah. Um, and in terms of turning other people in, they actually did like they actually really? did turn, turn the other one in. And it wasn't even in a bad, um, it was just like, this is happening and this can't, this is unworkable. So we need to fix this. So I actually think that they, those, I, now we're talking about a, maybe a group of maybe total, maybe 15 <laughs> men and women. Yeah. So this is an ex exceedingly small um, representation of, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the staff. And these aren't, the these aren't staff. correctional officers, right? These are well, kitchen they, they supervisors. Are, they are, and they can deputize as COs. And okay. like, you know, like there was an emergency, they're allowed to go into the units and run stuff. They have every authority. They have the same badge, the same training, but they're yeah. just, their job duties are different. Okay. So I did see very ethical behavior from them and they weren't, if they, they weren't out to get each other. It was just, they knew they were so experienced. They, some of them, one of them had almost 30 years, you know, working in Connecticut prisons and then others had, you know, at least 20. So they, they were really experienced and they knew if they let it go out of control, that it was, there was going to no end. And you, you know, uh, 
yourself. Like when, when something, when people are like turning their blind eye towards either a, a CEO that's behaving badly or an inmate that's play, behaving badly, it never goes to a good place. It never just resolves itself and, and works out. It's always headed towards some kind of problem. Yeah. Even if it's just that that person either ends up in the hole or the CEO gets in trouble or gets removed. Sometimes they get fired. Like when you see those rule deviations and the violations, you know, unless somebody steps in, this is this is headed to a bad place where somebody's going to lose something. And it may not even be a just loss, right? Like it may be that somebody innocent gets caught in this and ends yeah. up, you know, being punished for it. But it, there's never a just where this is just going to go poof and end, right? It's going to continue to the point that somebody gets hurt. Um, so yeah, so in terms of that, but the CEOs, I think that there's a, like, there's that, you know, there's an institutional culture in prisons, but yeah. I also think that there is, there are unusual, um, demands put on CEOs, which is, you know, just like there's this anti-snitch culture in, in a prison, there's the anti-snitch culture for the CEOs, right? So like, if somebody were to say to, you know, so-and-so is doing X, Y, and Z and complain about him. And he complains to a captain who might be, um, I don't know, like dating the, the CEO's sister. I found that a lot of things were pretty incestuous in there. Like yes. all the CEOs, a lot of them were related. They were cousins. They were brothers. They were wives and husbands. They were. So if you go, say you're new and you go against the wrong one, you can really get screwed in terms of overtime, in terms of people like protecting sure. you. That kind of thing. I mean, uh, my prison was not particularly violent, so I don't think that there was ever a situation where if they left someone like locked in a room with uh, a bunch of women, I think there were enough moral women who wouldn't have let like the CEO get killed or like it's not like yeah. Oz, you know, that TV show that used to be on HBO. <laughs> it's not like that. But I, I do think that there's a culture that they have to contend with as well. And I think that there is um, what makes it worse is that there is no accountability or virtually no accountability because of unions and the way that they've structured the contracts so that basically if you work as a corrections officer it's almost impossible to fire you yes um so i think that if there were another if you could if you knew that you would turn somebody in who was doing a really bad thing and that there would be a proportionate and just response to that misbehavior yep. i think you'd see more co's turn in colleagues who are doing bad things but because there's not Right. It's it's useless. Right. You can go say this officer is raping this inmate. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and if you tell the wrong captain or the captain tells somebody else and it goes to something else, you can be harassed. You can be denied overtime. There's all sorts Absolutely. of and, and they're not going to do anything to him, even though they might even have evidence that he's doing that. OK, so that's there's the, the incentive system. And I think this is probably true of like most of corrections is so warped that we don't get people acting in the rational ways that we want them to, because they know that, that what the, doing the right thing doesn't pay off for them the way that right. they should, or that way that we think it should. That matches my experience almost to the T. The one thing though, that you said, and, and I'm just going to ask you a little bit about it because it goes so against everything I ever experienced in 25 years. When you talk about the, the, 15 or so uh, staff members in the kitchen that are doing their job according to the book, right? So COs, correctional employees, for instance, are not supposed to bring cell phones into the facilities. They're not supposed to bring any type of electronics into the facilities. They're not supposed to bring reading material into the facilities. I don't believe they're supposed to be eating the uh, state food because they're given money, you know, you know, an allowance to buy food. Right. They're not supposed to be 
giving street food to inmates or allowing inmates to take extra food out of the kitchen. So at, while this may seem petty, I'll, I'll explain why I don't think it is in a second, but these 15, are you saying they were exempt from all those ethical breaches that I just talked about? Yeah. In fact, um, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, wow. I'm working on some, so a project about with Alabama prisons and the, mostly the men who are in there and they don't feed them right down. Like it's really bad. They, the, the Alabama DOC like willingly restricts food. Um, the, the bare minimum that they are legally required to provide to these men yeah. um, on, a, on a pretty regular basis. It's completely different than Connecticut. I, w- I found that Connecticut knew that they had to meet this legal obligation and, and they tried to do it. But in Alabama, no. And I never stole from the kitchen. I was a kitchen worker there and you could get you could trade, you know, cheese and other things. If you were to steal it out of the kitchen, sure, you could get other commissary or, you know, other things. I was told from day one. I didn't want to steal it. First of all, the, the method of stealing that you probably already know is <laughs> underwear. So I never understood this whole putting a chicken leg in your underwear yeah. and walking out of a chow hall with it. Like it's just yeah. the whole thing was disgusting to me. And people I used agree. to bring like pull a piece of roast beef out of their underwear and say, do you want some? And I yeah. said, I don't I don't even think that this is like a conceivable scenario for people that someone would pull roast beef out of their underwear and offer it to uh, someone else yeah. to eat. I used it's to think it was so pathetic that people did that. Like it just yes, looks yes, so would, demeaning it, that you're, you're doing right, stuff yeah, like that. Like you do dehumanize yourself, yeah. but also, you know, I was in there for larceny related crimes, so I wasn't going to steal anyways. And one of the reasons where I, I just, it's not, not right. I was told that I'm not supposed to do it. So therefore that's enough for me. But also how could I like go into an appellate court or even a regular court and protest these, um, you know, these charges and the convictions that they had on me and and have some evidence even not even evidence no in my i knowing that i did it myself that i was yeah. pilfering cheese out of the kitchen and there's this kind of sense like well this is how we get back at them like the state is screwing us because they're not treating us right so let's take a pound of american cheese and yeah. we'll settle the score which is patently absurd by itself like it's I mean, just a rationalization for but doing what I, they I want to do anyway stole. I never stole. And this was a big thing because they used to try to search the kitchen worker workers as we walked from the kitchen back to our cells. And I always like people used to try to avoid being searched. And I used to go up right to an officer, whoever was doing the searching. And I would be like, let's just go. Like, you want to strip search me, bring me in here, pat me down, whatever you need to do. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm sure they all thought I was crazy. But it was also like, I'm not doing anything. Let's just get this whole routine of you checking me done because I have nothing to hide and let's keep going from it. And so this, I actually earned a, a reputation, probably the only positive reputation I earned in there, but it as read that I, I'm not going to, I wasn't going to screw the officers by, um, you know, doing something behind their back and trying to take something out of the kitchen. So there was a, a I would say a, a certain modicum of respect that they knew that I wasn't going to do that to them. They had asked me not to do it. And I said, yes, I won't do it. And I honored that promise. And this is a big deal I would say in other prison systems, because I don't think people understand these, these places are definitely unfair. They're poorly run. The whole um, paradigm of corrections in the United States, doesn't matter which system you choose. If you choose a county jail in another state or a federal prison or one of our state prisons, it doesn't matter. It's all screwed up. But if you do stick to your principles and refuse to engage in certain behavior, there is a payoff. I'm not saying it's a huge payoff, but there is a payoff. And I think this is one of the things that disconnects for a lot of the people in prison is that they don't know that if you just hold on long enough and by doing the right thing, not stealing, not misrepresenting, whatever it is, it is that you stay, 
you know, kind of true to whatever the rule is, your internal rule or even an external rule that's been imposed on you, you can get to somewhere where you get a benefit. Either mm. it's that people trust you more, um, that you're you're free of discipline, like you don't even have to worry about a, like someone coming in and trying to punish you or take your privileges or anything else. And that was the biggest lesson for me is how many women that I was around that did not know if they just stuck with it and stayed on it. Even I would say this is true, even in addiction, right? Like if you just try to stay, just stay clean, just get through the day without using, you will eventually get to a place where there's a payoff. And I really feel like that's the lesson that's missing um, when people come in and it's not a lesson that's being imparted to them enough while they're there to help them when they get out. And the way I saw that the most was that people, women I worked with, and also like I saw working in other situations in the at York, they didn't know how to work hard. And I want to be clear, that's not me saying that they're lazy. I don't think that at all. They just did not know that if they did like something in a sustained way over a certain amount of time that they would actually get a benefit from it, right? Why, like, so why it, are you so reluctant to say they're lazy? Because I think a lot of times when I've said this before, people have interpreted that I'm saying they're lazy. And I really don't think that they were. I think they literally were like, oh, if I go every day to work, Mr. B, who runs the laundry, who I happen to think uh, I didn't never work for him, but I would say his name was Bernstein. And I would actually say he was an exceptional employee for DOC because he trained the women who worked in our laundry so well to work hard, to be honest to do ex do what they were told in terms of like, you know, how the laundry ran. ran. So many people say, I owe my success post-prison to Mr. B because of what he taught me when I worked in laundry. He taught me a work ethic. He taught me this. He taught me that. So that's why, I don't know if you've read a lot of my stuff, but I'm very actually pro-prison labor. I know everyone denounces it as slavery and everything else. And I think that the low wages are a problem, but I also think that it's probably even more than education, the way towards rehabilitation and getting mm -hmm. people to understand if they just toe the line for a little bit longer, that there can be a payoff. There can be a promotion, um, more money, that something if you just, rather than just quitting and saying, oh, this my situation, I don't like it. It's unfair, which it very well may be. Um, I, I, that's it. I'm rebelling and I'm not going to honor these rules. If you hang on a little bit longer, you will get to a better place. And that's something that I feel like is, was absolutely missing. The women who did get it found out about it after, you know, when they like it, they learned their lessons from Mr. Bernstein when they came home. Um, but I, that's something that I thought was really never, um, made explicit to a lot of women. And I'm more of a thinker than a lot of the women that were in there. So I think it needs to be made explicit to a number of people who are incarcerated. Um, you, people like you and me who've, who are overthinking this stuff like day and night and running it through our minds, it will catch it. But people who are not used to thinking that, um, that heavily about things or are not used to pondering these things might not catch that lesson. Okay, so you said so much that's that's good, and you also said some stuff I'm going to disagree with. But before I get okay. to it, I just want to go back a little bit to when I said about staff members bringing in cell phones or giving food to inmates, or I didn't mention, I don't think, but you know, undue, undue familiarity with inmates. The reason it's important that they don't even break small rules is because inmates are watching. And if inmates see that the staff don't follow the rules, the inmates themselves gain a view of the world whereby everybody's a, a, a rule breaker. Everybody's a crook. Everybody's just like me. It's just they get away with it. And that's never a message that you want to send. There's to, that, to or there's also even a refinement of a lesson, which is that you can, if you can figure out a way to get away with it, then rule yes. breaking is fine. It, it's it's yes. really not rule breaking. It's normal behavior. Yes. Yeah. Now, 
you said that if you just stick with your principles, you will get the payoff. You also said earlier about the incentive system in prison. See, this, and this is where it's a nuanced disagreement that I have with you because I do think that in life in general, there's a tendency when you stick to your principles, eventually you get a payoff. Eventually things get better for you. But in prison on a day-to-day basis, for instance, you gave the example of you're not stealing the cheese, right? Right. Now they feed you terribly in prison, right? And and yeah. I don't mean terribly as far as the food not tasting good. I'm talking about terribly in terms of portions and in, in terms of nutrients. Yeah. It's actually counterproductive for society because they're going to end up spending more money on the back end in terms of paying medical bills than they would have right. if they just fed it appropriately. So you every day are are doing this. You're not stealing. You're sticking to your guns. Meanwhile, I know women are stealing every day. Mm. And there's very rarely a consequence to that. Even if they, if the, if the officer in the block sees somebody in the prisons I've been in, if you, if you can make it out of the kitchen back to the block, it's like a dead issue. Nobody cares anymore. So the COs see you bringing in the, the bagged up chicken that's been in your underpants or the milks or cheese or whatever. And no one cares. No one, no one says anything about it. So in that instance, the person who's doing what's right ends up going hungry, whereas the people are doing wrong are are eating in plenty. And there's so many examples like that in prison. And the, uh, an example I always give, because to me, it's just so typical and encapsulates the almost the entire prison experience when it comes to this issue. I used to work in the, the prison industries as well. Now we had a block full of uh, 96 guys and f- I think 40 of us worked in the, in the industries and there's limited showers and the wreck, the wreck was split tier. So when we would get back from work, there would be a shower list where you, if, if your wreck isn't out, if your tier is not out for wreck, you sign up for the shower and lock up and then you get in the shower when your term comes. The thing was my celly and, and I were the only two that obeyed that rule. No one else did, but there was no consequence to it because the COs are too busy, you know, talking or playing video games or whatever. So they're not paying any attention. They really don't care. So everybody gets a shower. Everyone gets extra wreck, except for the two guys that actually obeyed the rule and up punished. And that happens every single day in prison, especially when you're doing the right thing. And it not only puts you at odds in terms of not getting the rewards of rule breaking, but then the other inmates are also upset with you, as I'm sure you've dealt with working in the kitchen where other girls wanted you to bring stuff back for them and you refuse. And now they're upset with you. That happens all the time. And it's just such a disincentive. So to tell somebody in those conditions, don't worry, in the long run, it's going to pay off when their everyday experience is that it's not going to. It's a very, very tough argument to make. It is a tough argument to make, but I think also. I think it's about length of time, right? So if someone was in for like six months, they probably aren't going to get this lesson. But I was around people who were doing more time than I was. So I was, you know, and I was in there for six years. That was not a short period of time. So I think over time, people knew, like, I think um, they would never say anything to me. I'm sure they talked about me behind my back, but they would (laughs) never say Chandra's like, you know, whatever for, for not taking the cheese home for us. But I also think that they knew um, over time that, if I really was in a jam, right? Because I, I actually did get in a lot of jams. There happened to be a, a one CEO who was um, 
unusually dedicated to like torturing me. Um, and, and I needed protection from him a number of times. Um, is that they saw that when if I were in a jam that they looking on they would have said she's done she's gonna go to solitary and you know seg and it's over for her for now um, that they saw these guys intervene in an ethical way right they weren't doing me any favors they were just saying we know this employee she works uh, for us we know she didn't do this yeah. or we like we witnessed that she didn't do X Y or Z or something like that and I think that they saw what it's like to have what what it's like when you earn um, a respect. And I don't mean respect like, oh, they think you're great. I'm talking about that they know your character and they know what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And you've become reliable and consistent to someone else. That's another thing that I think is is big, is that like consistency is not um, emphasized in a place where, right, everything is pretty rote and, and automatic and consistent in terms of like, you know, days don't really vary one from the other, right? It's no. always the same time unless there's an emergency or something else um so it, consistency is not emphasized so i think and, and i may be giving myself entirely too much credit but i think that over time like you know i worked from for five years in the food service and with not not stealing anything once um that they knew that this is a person who has earned something in there in terms of respect from other people. And there's also, she the benefit she has is that a clear conscience. I never had to worry about someone going into my room, my cell and tossing it and finding the ketchup that I stole. Or, you know, <laughs> that like it was, there was a, something freeing about not having to worry about how to make these moves that weren't yes. weren't allowed. All right. And and so I think that that might've been a, a, a more silent and a slower lesson, but I think it did get through to the people who are around me for years upon years. Right. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, you know, a, and a lot of people don't spend that much time in prison, especially at York, you know, they get a, a three year sentence and they do um, a total of 18 months, but a lot of that's on parole. So maybe they do nine months. So they're not really there long enough to get like that sustained lesson. Yeah. So I, but I see what you're saying. Like when so many, when rule breaking is, is, um, is is rewarded that it, it does give that perverse lesson but i i also know because i there was one particular woman who i know was um giving sexual favors to staff a number of them and she got away with murder right like she was tampering with phones once you know that's a huge like that's yeah. a class a ticket you are yeah. like there is no negotiating with that and she didn't have to go to solitary she didn't have to do anything um never got loss of commissary when she did get caught doing something so she, you know, like basically she lived a pretty consequence free life. She was allowed yeah. out during count time. Like it was, it was kind of like, how, how is anyone not noticing this? And um, I actually really liked her. I thought she was a good person. I don't, I don't think that she was a mean person. She was just used to getting by, by breaking the rules and also like um, doing something unethical for, for an unethical person and getting them on like joining forces with them. Yeah. So she got out shortly after I did and she connected with me and I noticed immediately that she was back to using drugs. She was getting arrested all the time. So I thought, always thought this is a perfect example of what this woman, like she didn't really follow any rules. She wasn't wild. Like she was, she was just doing what she wanted to get what she wanted for herself, like tweezers, you know, to do her eyebrows, which we couldn't have, or like occasionally she'd get a pizza or she'd get um, drink mix like crystal light that, we did they only had like sugar drinks as you know we you had the same commissary i did yeah. that kind of thing minor things that she would get you know these conveniences that she would get for her life um really made her life kind of inconvenient when she got out because she didn't understand that this wasn't going to work on the outside if she had heroin they're going to arrest her for it and, and she's going to go to back to jail for yeah. it yeah so i i i've always thought this was a she was a perfect example of like 
allowing people to get away with stuff does them no favors whatsoever when they get out. Right. And I know a lot when I've discussed this with people, they say, no, it's an addiction. She's just ill because she has an addiction. That's true. But there's also one of the ways to battle addiction is to understand you're not going to get away with it. You're either going to get caught or dead, especially with fentanyl out there now. Like there's no good end. You're not just going to be some drug user forever, uh, you know, getting high. Like there's going to be an end to this that you're not going to like to this pattern of behavior. And she didn't learn that. And you know, I actually, I haven't been in touch with her for a while. I, I hope she's still alive, but I think that it's entirely possible because she went right back to the drug use because she didn't really learn anything while she yeah. did. And she did like eight or nine years. Like this wasn't Ugh. a skid bid at, at all is that she, you know, they did nothing for her. Connecticut DOC did nothing to help that woman. And the thing is that they are obligated to rehabilitate offenders by their very existence in being called corrections. So yeah. whether people think that inmates should just be punished or not is irrelevant. You're being taxed to pay for rehabilitation that inmates aren't getting. So Chandra, earlier you were very hesitant to say uh, that the inmates were lazy. So I'm not. Oh, there are some that are. I want to be clear, oh. but I wasn't saying I wasn't painting them with a yes. broad brush. Like okay. all these women in prison are lazy. There okay. were some who literally were like, "Oh, I can work. I like I know how to do this. Yeah. I can handle this." Yeah. Okay. So let me paint with a broad brush. It's one of the uh, characteristics of criminals in general that they're both physically and psychologically lazy when it comes to things they don't want to do. Inmates can be very resourceful and very energetic when it comes to getting what they want. Yes. But, but I, used to, I used to say that they're like yeah. MacGyver when they want something. <laughs> they, could, they could they could create, they sure. would solder stuff sure. together. They would do anything. Yeah. Sure. Now you talked about the, um, and I, I want to just say at the outset, I think work in prison is very important. Teaching a good work ethic is is vital. I think they're all very important. But would it surprise you to, to know that neither education, I mean, standard education, college, GED, that sort of stuff, nor work experience in prison are highly correlated to not going back that, that, that those, I mean, that they have not been shown to significantly reduce recidivism. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't surprise me. I know they reduce it a little bit, but I also know like those studies are inherently flawed because they're talking to people who um post-prison who are available for these interviews. So you're yes. naturally going to pull people who are in more um, stable situations like they're not yes. going to the homeless guy on the on the street yeah. and finding out if he was in prison yeah. and what happened to him so you're bit you're going to like either a workplace or a university or some program and asking like you're asking the already successful people uh yeah. you know what worked for you so it actually should be higher just because of that self-selection bias in it yes it should be higher than it is so yes, I would, I would, if you know what's real statistical significance is. So yeah, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me that they're not, but they yeah. do do something. They I just, do. I've, I've witnessed it. Yes. No, I'm not saying there's no effect, but the, the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, addressing criminogenic needs is by far the, the, the best reducer of recidivism when done correctly in an environment that's conducive to rehabilitation, which the current system yes. is not. Before I let you go, I've got to ask you about this because everything you've said, I, I by and large, I, I love it. I think it's great. But I read something that you wrote yesterday and I, it was like, wow, especially given what you said earlier about the unions protecting the correctional officers. You wrote, and I don't know how long, I think, I don't know how long ago it was written, but you wrote that the unions are essential for prison reform. Do you still believe that? And if so, why? 
Um, yeah, I do think they're essential, but that doesn't mean that they're going to do it, right? Like, so if the unions got on board and did this, we'd be, we'd be done in like Oh, months. sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I misunderstood. So what you're saying is that unless they're on board, it can't get done, but you're not arguing that they would be on board. No, I was hoping that they would when I first got out, right? Like I was, and I was, you know, cause I, I used to talk to a couple of the CEOs and stuff and they, they aren't in agreement with all the ways that DOC is like, I, I don't think there's any DOC employee that agrees with how DOC runs itself, which is no. kind of funny when you think about that, cause the people are the, are DOC, right? Like yes. they are the actual problem. But um, no, I think if the unions got on board and said, look, we don't, we don't benefit from mass incarceration. We don't benefit from this. We don't benefit from that because we are citizens too. Um, you could to get this done in a, in a, a minute. I think that things have actually gotten worse since I got out. Right? Remember, I got out in 2014, and then a year later, Trump comes down the escalator, and things actually go pretty haywire. Right? Like if you look at the general discussion of um, either prison reform or like criminal justice reform, any of that kind of stuff, things get one, one off track. There are certain things that have, have succeeded, like you know the you know barriers to employment. Things have gotten better definitely since I came home. But I, I also think that um, with the increased uh, scrutiny of police violence, um, of correctional officer violence, and what they do and that kind of thing, I think that they've become, these unions have been, become more entrenched in protecting their people and also getting money, right? Like, I don't know if you know anything about California and their um, guard union, but they gave a huge amount to uh, Gavin Newsom's campaign. He's the governor now, and he basically does what whatever they want, like whatever they want in their contract, they get, which is basically zero accountability. So I think we're getting farther and farther away from that. But if we had them on board, we would, this would be done in, in, in a second. What do you think about consequence based payment? What, what I mean is there's a corporation and I don't know a whole lot about them, but what I do know is that it's, it's called Serco. They're a private prison corporation that runs out of the UK. They have prisons in Australia, UK, and New Zealand, New Zealand. And they pay staff based on results. So in other words, if if recidivism rates go down, the guards, the people that work in the prisons get bonuses. To me, that would be a, a, a wonderful way to run prisons where the staff was actually invested in outcomes rather than being invested in inmates staying into prison. Do you, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a professor at Fordham University, uh, John Pfaff. It's P-F-A-F-F. Who uh, wrote a book about this? How do you spell that? P F A F F. John Pfaff. He's at Fordham. Okay. And he wrote a book about it, about like how it's just basically why um, policing and corrections are so terrible and and don't get better is that the, these perverse incentives are entrenched within, right? So there's certain people who just have too much of an interest in keeping us. Um, screwed up right like yeah. keeping, keeping these dysfunctional systems going so he's talked about this a lot i've never heard of that company i think that's really uh, interesting that would that work i bet yeah i mean I, I like if there were some way for them to make more money by you know either not having sex with an inmate and we're i'm talking you know women's prison so probably that probably didn't happen i would hope too much in in, in where you were uh but like if there was some other payoff to avoiding that behavior and how they they interact with the correctional population i think that would work probably pretty well is there are there any studies on like how are, are there recidivism rates low in these in these facilities i 
you know, I've only been out for five months, so I haven't had a chance really to, I mean, I've been very busy to delve into it, but it would, I believe so. I believe, I mean, there's criticisms of them, but there's going to be criticisms, uh, you know, no matter what, but I believe that they are having beneficial effects. Uh, like I said, I haven't delved deep into it. And I also don't know that they're necessarily administering the principle in an effective way. I, I just know that the corporation exists and that's what they do. And for, I read about them uh, in a book called Incarcerate, Incarceration Nations, where the, the woman ba, uh, Baz Dreisinger went all over, you know, all over the world and studied the prison system. And she is opposed to prisons, period. And she actually was somewhat complimentary. And I also read an article in the New York Times. I can't remember who wrote it where the guy was very much opposed to private prisons, but he actually gave some, was complimentary about the the company Serco. Okay, Chandra, before I let you go, and, and I hope you'll come back because you've been wonderful, yeah. but is there anything I forgot to ask you? Anything you, you, you want to say? <laughs> um, there is so much that I would want to say, especially <laughs> after six years in prison and nine years home. Um, just that one, keep doing what you're doing because these are the right questions. And um, I wrote about... Um, something you know before like about inmate relationships and i said that there is a plaintive p-l-a-i-n-t-i-v-e undertow in inmate populations that they're kind of complaining and identifying as victims all the time yes and i think that this podcast and what you're talking about is actually an essential antidote to that because it's not victim-centered like we, we both know that it's bs what's happening in these places and it there's a lot of unfairness and people get abused and treated like um treated terribly right but it's really important not to be, get a, develop a victim mentality because that's 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 when they win, right? Like when yes. people who are incarcerated say, "I'm a victim of this," even though they are, like straight up. I don't think that you went through a a, a period of incarceration without being victimized. Um, when you identify mentally that way, the game is over. Like we will not change this stuff. We will not get better conversations about it. We will it will just be this entrenched bunker mentality where the COs are saying that they're great they're honorable they do everything right when they clearly don't right and no one does like so let's not even like pretend like it's not even an attack on COs no one executes perfectly um is that you know uh we're not going to get anywhere it's victim and aggressor and that's and, and actually each side thinks that they're the victim and the other side is the aggressor and we we end up um stalled in our conversations and our also our ideas and our innovation of how to change things all right, Chandra, where can people find you? Um, they can go to um, www.prison-diaries.com. That's the old blog, but there is a um, a contact page if they need to get in touch with me, or they can just find my writing at the National Memo, which is nationalmemo.com, or witnessla.com, or even connecticutexaminer.com. It's ctexaminer.com. And um, also, if they Google me, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all these other places. So if anyone needs to reach out, I, I'm findable for sure. All right, great. And I do hope you will come back. I definitely will. Keep, uh, me, in, uh, keep me in mind when you need a guest and I'm happy to come back. Absolutely. Well, for now, I'm Michael Leibowitz. This is The Rational Egoist signing off. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Until next time.